0: Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. one of the pastors here. Today is a special day. We're finishing up our study that we've been working through. Almost a year of, of study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so when we, we get finished with the book, I feel like this is a, a big moment for our, our churches. We've all together been surrounded by the, been surrounding the Word, trying to learn study it, not only on Sunday mornings, but also in groups. And so I've asked Corey and Sue to join me up here this morning to just kind of share their story about working through a book and how it's affected them. Um, here at Sojourn, we, we really strongly believe in what we call expository preaching. And that just basically means that the point of the text ought to be the point of what we're talking about in our sermons and our groups. And so that's what we do. And we find that the, the easiest way to do that, maybe the best way, is to just work through the scripture, book by book and verse by verse. And so that's been our practice. There's there's times when we may do series this, uh, Hopefully we're still taking the, the point of the passage as the point of our sermons, but we just walk through Scripture together, and, and what's amazing is to see how the Word of God does exactly what it intends to do. It works and equips the saints for work. It, it encourages them, it challenges them, and it grows them. And so that's just what I want Corey and Sue to share about this morning. So I'm asking them to come share about their their time through First Corinthians. So how has working through this book, as we have, helped you guys?
1: Well, so a little bit of background. Most of you probably know we come from. Very conservative group. Know, probably, that's probably good enough to say that. But very topical uh, in teaching. Uh, they would preach basically what the Holy Spirit would bring that morning. They wouldn't even know out of the three ministers, usually who was going to preach. So the attention to just staying in, you know, staying in a book, going through it expository. That's a word, but um, just that's been really great for me. I
2: think for me, it's been especially in First Corinthians. Often, um, we'll hear people quote a verse, and, and I'll go, Really? And now I think back, I can just or look back in my Bible, oh, yeah. I mean, I remember that being preached, I remember being preached in that context, and then I have a foundation or a baseline for. Where to put the comment that people used in regards to that verse, and that's been huge for me. So, just based on, there's been a lot of content in 1
0: Corinthians, and so as we've gone through this book, it's been unique that we've covered a lot of different things. There have there been specific topics that you guys have really grown in your understanding of as we've walked through this?
1: Well, so it's interesting. Uh, I mean, Sue used to wear a head covering, so you would think that maybe that would, would have been what impacted me. Maybe it did you. But um, the, almost the biggest thing is living in light of the resurrection. Um, that has been huge. And then also the holy kiss. you still waiting. One more in context, right?
2: It was really good to hear uh, a sermon on the head covering. I, when I put it aside, I felt very confident that I was doing the right thing. But to go through that with all of you... And here here it spoken on scripturally was huge. But just the underlying theme of of love, out of Corinthians and Paul just just um, what's the word? Passionately bringing those people out of out of their way their their simple ways and yet
0: always lovingly doing it. I, that's been awesome. So one more kind of question. Personally, um, what we really want to do is, is say that, and you know, what we as pastors do is, is nothing special. We're just trying to open up the Word, and try to see what does it say, how can we live it out. And so, what we're hoping is that what we do on Sunday can actually be duplicated in, in your own personal Bible studies. How has that been able to, to happen through 1 Corinthians as we've gone through it? So, how have you been able to better study the Bible or First Corinthians in general based on us going through a book of life?
1: So, what I see, I mean, Sue mentioned before, is context. Um, I've been so used to all my life just like, you know, opening up my Bible and just looking at something and, oh, okay, yeah, well, I'll take that for the day and just this verse. And, and there's a, if, you, if you go verse by verse in the Bible, there's a lot of conflicting ways to look at things. And. Um, just to learn to learn how important context is and to look at, you know, look at, if, hey, Paul was talking to Corinthians, you know, I, I just skipped through the first couple of chapters this morning. He's saying, like, I can't even talk to you as spiritual people. I'm talking to you as, with milk. Well, so in that context, that makes a lot of difference on how he talks to us. Um, and as we move, you know, as, as our journeys move through that, how to deal with that, and then just, you know, just I mean kind of go over, just not to take a verse, rather to study a passage. That's that's what I've been trying to do. More to.
2: Yeah, to know the background of the. I mean, it. You're some of the first sermons about the actual history of the Corinthians. Never heard that. Totally new. I mean, that put the head covering. That put so much of that stuff into perspective. That. To, to actually understand who these people were, what they were doing, how they were living, and why Paul has spoken to them the way they did has completely shifted Corinthians for me.
0: Well, thank you guys for sharing and being open and vulnerable with this. So we can make practice the whole case later. We'll see how that, we'll see how that turns out after this sermon.
1: It's a dry pad on the legs. We'll
0: talk technique after the, the text. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're, we're finishing up today, starting in verse 12 through the very end of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And really did just want to highlight um, how 1 Corinthians and how working through a book can, can be impactful for, for people's lives. And, and I'm just thankful for their openness to, to share those things. But many of you have those same kind of stories. And, and that's nothing, nothing that I have done. It's, it's something that God does through His Word. And this is something that He does all the time and, and is doing all over the globe. And so we're thankful for God's Word. We're thankful that we can come to it and be equipped by it. So 1 Corinthians 16 is, is where we'll be this morning as, as Paul closes out the, the, the letter to the Corinthian church. It's, it's, it's often said that it's not how you start how you finish the matters. And that the conclusions are really important. And what you put in the conclusion is what your people are going to remember. So if you're going to make a really great speech, you want to put something really powerful and impactful right at the very end. And you just send them out on the battlefield ready to go like let them charge ahead. And we kind of saw that in chapter 15. I kind of felt like at the end of chapter 15, like, this is the battle charge. Let's be done with it. But Paul doesn't do that. Because Paul still has more to do here. So what Paul is doing in this closing is is he's just closing out the letter, sure. But he's doing much more than that. Paul is still discipling us. He's still making these disciples in Corinthians, in in Corinth. And so even as he closes the letter, which is a, a routine thing. As he's written letters, you can try, you can see conclusions all through his letters that he's written in the scripture. This is routine, but it's not routine for Paul. Because every step of the way that he does in his closing is that he continues to teach. He continues to disciple. He continues to show them things. And it, even in this conclusion, we can see what Paul is, is trying to get for them. So he's kind of reiterating some of the things he's he's already said. He wants them to act rightly. He's instructing them in how to do that. But he also wants them to value rightly. And even the things that Paul points out as things that these are important at the very end are things that he's saying. These are things that you as a church ought to value. So we have to act rightly. There's instructions about that, but to value rightly. And then, of course, we can't
1: miss from Paul over and over again in 1 Corinthians that he wants everything that they do to be
0: done in love. And so he reiterates these At the very end of this letter. So if we look at verse 12. It seems as if the the Corinthians had asked about their brother Apollos. What's going on with him. So Paul addresses that briefly in verse 12. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not all his will to come to you now. He will come to you when he has opportunity." Then Paul goes on to, to give them this final encouragement in kind of machine gun fashion. So there's not just one central thing; he's kind of spray it out there and see what they how they take it. So in verse 13, you see this. He says, "Be watchful, stand firm in the faith." Now if we just stop right there and kind of summarize those statements, what Paul is talking about is being on guard. This is kind of battlefield language. This is you're in a war kind of language. The, the Corinthians, they, they lived in an interesting time. There was not overwhelming Christianity that is spreading throughout the globe that is overwhelming the entire world. No, you, you see that there are pockets of really good things happening and overwhelming persecution. And overwhelming thoughts away from God. So they weren't in a place that was really supportive of, of all of their religious views, of all of their Christianity. They were in a place that thought that the cross and a, and a crucified Messiah was, was foolish, was not wisdom. And so they lived in an interesting time, in an interesting place, with prevailing darkness around them. And they are in the pit in Corinth. Not much of the culture is approving of all they're doing. And so when we think about the Corinthian Christians, They are enemies without. And as we've read through the book, there are enemies within. There's sin without. And there's sin within. There's temptations and dangers all over the place, lurking in every single corner for the Corinthians. They're everywhere. And so Paul tells them in the end, be watchful, stand firm, be on guard, because there's a real battle going on, and you're right in the middle of this battle. And I like what one author said about kind of being in the the battle. He says, there's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap. Or the rustling of leaves and you're in an attack. Someone cops, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. This is what Paul is calling for in the Corinthian church. Be vigilant. Like you're in a war. Like you're listening for the enemy to approach. You're ready. You're ready to go. You're on guard. He wants them to remember they need to be on guard because there's enemies all over. You remember how sharply sometimes Paul confronts their sin? You remember how direct he gets with some of the things that they had problems with? With some of the sins and some of the divisions that they had in their church? You remember how sharply Paul addressed some of those things? why did he do that? Because that sin will destroy them. You see, the enemy is, is ever present, prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, exceptionally, exceptionally going after the church, wanting to destroy and to divide. To cause problems within the church. There's false teachers. There, there are people within their church that are dividing one another. They're, they're, they're causing divisions within their body. There's sin within them. Sin outside of them. There are dangers in every corner. And Paul wants them to be on guard because those kind of things will destroy them as a church. And as individuals. And so this last burst of instruction is to be taken lightly. It's not just like, let's hear all the the chain that Paul goes off, I'll be be on guard, stand firm. No, he wants them to understand that they're in the midst of something, that they don't need to be taken by. They need to be watchful and to stand firm. And don't we need to hear this? Don't we face enemies without a real, ever-present enemy that wants to destroy all those who would seek the glory of God? Don't we have an enemy within us called us that wants to do what we want to do, live how we want to live, fulfill all of our desires and not go after and follow the desires of our God. We too face an enemy without and within, and there's temptations, and there's sin and there's danger, and so often what we do is we take those things lightly. So it's no big deal to open up our Bibles, no big deal to go to church, it's no big deal to have a community because we don't understand the battle. We don't understand that we're in a war. We don't understand the sin that is inside of us. We need to be on guard, watching, and standing for and firm. Because we are in a war. And we better have sharp senses if we're going to go through this war without a ton of casualties. Not only personally, but in the body of believers as well. There, there might be some casualties if we're not willing to be on guard and to stand firm and to be watchful. Because the enemy is real and sin is real and it's worse than we think. Not only in other people, but in ourselves as well. So thankfully we have the Bible to warn us. We have the scripture to instruct us and to guide us on our way to encourage us as we go on and inward into this battle. But we need to be on guard. This is what Paul is calling for. Even in his last instructions, be watchful, stand firm. But we're not to just stand firm by just kind of gritting down, getting tough and just burying whatever comes ahead of us in the battle. That's not exactly what Paul is calling for because he says, stand firm in the faith Act like men and be strong. Stand firm in the faith. See, when he says that you need to stand firm, he's not just stand firm in any way you want. Stand firm in the faith. And when he talks about the faith, he's not just talking about any kind of faith. It's nothing special to have faith. Lots of people have faith. The, the Hindu has maybe, maybe even great faith. The, the, the Muslim might have great faith, it's not a big deal to have faith, but when he says to stand firm in the faith, what I, want, what I think he's bringing to our mind is two things. The object and the content of that faith. And those things are crucial because lots of people, as I said, have faith. So when he says stand firm in the faith, he wants them to understand that this is a specific kind of faith. That there's an object to this faith and there's a content to this faith. A lot of people have faith and he wants something specific. The object matters. And it's clear if you've read through 1 Corinthians with us. The object of their faith. He wants them to turn their eyes upon Jesus. The object of their faith isn't something random out there. It's Christ himself. Him crucified, him raised. He wants them to know. That's the object of your faith. It's ought to be set on Christ. We don't want you to just have great faith. We want you to have great faith in the right object, in the right direction. And that is in Christ Jesus. But also... And you said stand firm in the faith. That means that if, you're, if the object of your faith is Jesus, what's the content of your faith? What are you believing in? And the content is the gospel. Over and over and over again through this letter, he's reminded of that. Two, in chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was for him a small way of saying, here's the content of your faith. It's Jesus Christ. That He was this Son of God living this perfect life. But He didn't just come and live this great life, reign as King, and that was it. No, He came, and He spoke and taught and lived in a way that was perfectly in obedience to His Father, and yet He was killed for it. And that's crucial to our faith, is that we have at the middle of it this Messiah who was crucified, who's taking in His own body the sins that people deserved, the sins that was We had committed. He was taking on Himself so that we wouldn't have to face that kind of punishment. Christ and Him crucified is the message of the gospel that He wants them to know. He said it again in in chapter 15. Fifteen chapters in, He's talked about a lot of things. And He wants them to be reminded of this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Summary of the gospel. That Christ came and He died he was buried and that he was raised. Crucial elements to our faith. So let's just not stand firm in any kind of faith. Let's make sure that our faith is in the right object. Let no one stand firm in any kind of faith that isn't in, rooted in and centered upon Jesus Christ. And whose content is the gospel. We need both of those elements for this passage to work out the way it's supposed to work out. We don't stand firm in fairies and pixie dust. And just act like that's going to be Okay. And some content that's a fairy tale. That we just trust in and rely on. We think it's going to turn out well for us. It's not what Paul's telling them to stand firm in. People can do that. He wants them to stand firm in the right faith. With the right object and the right content. So he says, stand firm in faith. Act like men and be strong. So he's continuing this machine gun fire. This is a call for for courage. A call for, for standing up. For holding your ground. For knowing that there's no retreat in the midst of this battle. And so women, he's not just addressing men and telling you, act like a man. He's telling you to do not be cowardly, to be courageous, to stand in the middle of the battle. To act like men and stand firm. Be strong. It's all these battle type languages. And no surprise from Paul, he ends out of this machine gun fire in 14, let all that you do be done in love. When we think through all that Paul has addressed, this can address every single one of them. All the divisions, if they were to seek their own desires and they were to do everything in love, there may not be so many divisions. It addresses that. Their attitude, maybe even a, a very negative attitude toward Paul, this acting in love would address that. Their lawsuits that they're having among one another, acting in love would, would, would address that. Their mistreatment of the weak. Their their marriages that they want to leave or or get out of for some reason. Their selfish desires to eat meat just because they want to. Their their own discrimination. When they come together around the Lord's table between the poor and the weak, their failure to practice gifts rightly. All of those things that we've talked about can be addressed by that verse in 14. Let all that you do be done in love. There will never be a time when believers don't need to be reminded that all that they do needs to be done in love. It doesn't happen. This is why Timothy gets this letter and Paul says, Let everything be done in love. It's the same idea that you, this is the, the charge. Do it in love. And Paul wants to reiterate that as he concludes out this letter, that all you do be done in love. But what else? What else is Paul doing with the last kind of ink of this letter? What's he, what is he driving the Corinthians toward? This is kind of a, a tough passage because. There is this random bunch of stuff that he's kind of driving at, but I think that he's he's showing us how to value the right things even as a church. So if we look at verses fifteen through eighteen, he's he's holding up the example of one of the people's from their one of the one person from their church. He says in verse fifteen, "I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints." Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have lived. They have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Now, now Paul points out Stephanus's life, how he devoted himself to the service of the saints. Now, what do we know about Stephanus? Is he a pastor? Is he a deacon? Is he a leader within the church? Does he have some sort of leadership role that he's fulfilling? And, and the answer is, is that he, he's no one. He's nobody. He's anybody. The, 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 the role that he's playing isn't important. What's important to Paul is his selfless service to the saints. He could have been a pastor, he could have been a deacon, he might not have been any of those, but he's holding him up as a model because of his selfless service of the saints. He's a worker, he's a laborer, he cares about what's going on within this body. And so here we have this this model for us from Stephanus. Normal God. We have no idea what his title was. We have no idea what his role was. Normal God, he's giving himself to the good of others. You ever heard of someone who was giving himself for the good of others? That sounds like a Christ-like person to me. And this is all Stephanus is doing. So all the details we get about him here. But along with Stephanus, we get Fortunatus and Achaicus. And he says of them that they refreshed Paul as they refreshed the Corinthians. And so it wasn't as if they were going to Paul and they were this great encouragement. But back home, they were real bare. No one wanted to deal with them. No, they, they refreshed the Corinthians... They could go to Paul and they could refresh him as well. They were encouragers. They were life givers. You know these kind of people. Some people can put wind in the sail and some can take it out of the sail. Right? You're probably even thinking of pictures in your mind right now. You've known some of these people that can be refreshing and encouraging, that can give life, that can put wind in the sail, or you can suck it completely out of them. But what I want us to think about is that we're not talking about like Oscar the Grouch versus Elmo here. We're not talking about someone who's just really grumpy versus someone who's really bubbly and just always says something really nice. That's not what it means to give refreshment or to put wind in someone's sails. What I think that would mean is to speak the truth. With with wisdom, you're speaking the truth in love. That's what gives refreshment. That's what encourages people. It's not that you're always happy all the time, 100% of the day. I don't think they came to Paul and said, everything's great. Don't worry about the Corinthian church. They're doing fine. We're doing great too. Don't worry about that too. How are you doing? Like, I'm not sure that that's how the refreshment was. But they were able to give refreshment to Paul because they could speak truth in, him, they could love him, and they could go back the other direction as well. So what does he say to do because of these men? In verse 16 he says, to be subject to such as these. They are to submit themselves to, To people in the sense that they are voluntarily yielding to them in love, seeing their example seeing their devotion, seeing their labor and work for the Lord and for the saints, they're to submit themselves to these people it's a lot like as 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, it says respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work there's a similar thing that he's saying here. And so he encourages not only to be, be submissive to them, but in verse 18 he says, Recognize such people. Give recognition to these kind of people. Just as he said in First Thessalonians, Paul, Paul wants them to submit to them, to recognize them, to value those kind of people. And so as he knows, he's closing out this letter, he, he's, he's working them toward a value system valuing the right things within the church and they are to value the right kind of people. He wants to value, imitate, recognize the kind of people who give themselves and have given, devoted their lives to the service of the saints who would labor and work and refresh people who are in Christ. These are the people we are to value. These are the people we are to recognize. These are the people we are to submit to. And how does that line up with what the Corinthian church valued? What they valued, what the Corinthians in general often valued, was strength was power, influence, you had the right social status. This could be a major cause of their divisions that they had in the first couple of chapters is that there were people who, who had some status, who had some power, who had some money maybe, were causing problems. Because they're after their own agenda. They valued wisdom. Wisdom that didn't kind of line up with Christ who crucified. They valued things that the world valued. And Paul is even in these last few verses, Working and moving them to value the right things. Not the powerful people, not their status, not the ones who are the most influential within the community. Not the ones who have the most worldly wisdom or even talk the best, speak the best, have the most wisdom come out of their mouth. But people who give themselves to ministry, people who give themselves to service. And there's, there's no doubt that there was kind of probably a celebrity culture then where people would attach themselves and had pride in attaching themselves to the right person. But it's not as if that's gone away and that our culture is completely different. We have this celebrity culture, and it. it's not just outside of the church either. But we think about just our, our culture in general. We have this celebrity culture that, that, that loves to know what a celebrity is doing. I don't understand it. We have this show, it's called Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Nothing happens. I'll give you, like, here's the update into the show they don't do anything. And yet it's really, really popular because we have this, this craze like, what's this celebrity doing? We have this show called TNZ, I don't even know what that stands for, TMZ, where they just follow, they try to film athletes and celebrities of some sort doing something. Just anything, everybody, and they'll put it on a show and they'll they'll talk about it. These are real things. You look at the tabloids and like, this celebrity is going on a diet. Fantastic! Like, but it's, it's all the time we have this obsession, this craze with what are these celebrities doing? And unfortunately, the church isn't immune to this. Sometimes it can reflect this. To where status, influence, and power matters more in the church than what it should. For the people who are recognized are the people that have some sort of influence within the community. Or maybe some big athletes. Or that have some sort of power or money so they can exert their influence on in the church... In the way that they seem right. And as Christians and as the church, what we need to do is reevaluate how we value things and how we value people. We value all because they're made in the image of God. But Paul says specifically here, you ought to value the people. You want to recognize the people who devote themselves to the service of the saints. Those are the people who should be recognized. Those are the people you should submit to. Those are the people that you should give credit to when they're doing these things. Imitate and follow. Not just someone who has some sort of status within your body. It doesn't matter if they have some sort of great social status in your community. They're the mayor of the town and they don't devote themselves to the work of the saints. Paul would say you need to recognize and submit to them. You, Stephanus, normal guy, devoting himself to the work of the saints, refreshing the saints wherever he goes. Those are the people you submit and recognize. We need to value the right kind of people within our community—people who are servants, we respect them, and esteem them, and submit to them, and recognize them. And, and what I would encourage us—if you see these kind of people, and they are all over this body—you see these, tell them, recognize them, do it. Just send them a note, write them an the email, go talk to them. Tell them that you see them devoting their lives to the work of the saints. And tell them how they've refreshed you, given encouragement to you. And maybe that would be an encouragement and refreshment to them. And there are so many of these types of Sojourn. I will hear stories, I get this unique perspective, where I get to hear stories from different groups that have no idea that I've heard stories from other people about the same kind of things and how God's working. And so what I hear often that encourages me the most is stories I have nothing to do with whatsoever. That God continues to say, you're not even needed here. I could do this without you. And He's right. People ministering to other people. Where I just hear them talking about how someone encouraged them, gave them refreshment, gave themselves to their service, served them, washed feet. I get to hear those kind of stories and they always encourage me. It's a pleasure to hear those kind of stories because those, those are the people I set this. us. Devoted themselves to the work of the saints. And so I, I need to think about do we as, as individuals, as Christians and as a body, do we devote ourselves to that kind of service? Do we recognize those who do? Do we want to recognize them? We want to submit to them out of love, we want to just voluntarily say, like, you are devoting yourself in this way. I want to submit myself underneath that. I like what one theologian has said, he said, accordingly, if we wish to secure the welfare of the church, let us always take care of that honour be conferred upon the good. Let their counsels have the greatest weight. Let others give way to them and allow themselves to be governed by their groups. We're not looking for people that have the greatest social status. We're not looking for the people that just have the biggest influence or amount of money that they give. We're looking for people who looking for people to value and to submit to who are devoting themselves to the word of the saints. They're giving refreshment to the people of God. Those are the people we ought to value. That is the right value system within the church. And so you might think, like, okay, I can think about some of those kind of people. And I would say, if you think about some of those kind of people, don't just sit back and say, let's just let them devote themselves to the work of the saints. And we'll just try to keep patting them on the back as they refresh us and as they refresh others. If you're not this, if you're not devoting yourself to the work of the saints, then I say find one of those people and start imitating them. That's what discipleship is. I think he's holding up Stephanus not just as a, hey, give recognition to this man, but also, like, imitate him. This is what your church ought to look like. There would be way less division among you if you devote yourselves to the work of the saints. If you would be a fellow laborer and worker that you'd try to give refreshment to people in Christ. You ought to imitate these kind of people. And if you can't just like see them enough to imitate them, then, then don't ask them. Say, please, can I just follow you around? Not in a creepy way. I want you to disciple me. That's what we're talking about. Like people follow Jesus and try to act. That's what we're to do. This is discipleship. So if you see these kind of people... You might need to go to them ask, like, can you please decide for me what does it look like to be a fellow laborer? What does it look like to devote myself to the service of the saints? And then follow in their example. These are the kind of people we ought to value and recognize in our midst. Not those who have the best social status in the world, but those who have done what God has called them to do, who have devoted themselves to the Word of God and living that out in their lives. That is the only thing he wants them to value. Even as he continues to teach his final greetings that he comes up with. He, he shows them what else they're valued. If you Look at verse 19. He says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And all the brothers send you greetings. Now, in a subtle way, Paul is taking these Corinthians who could be a little bit likely to kind of narrow in on their situation. Partly because they have a lot of problems there but also partly because they're just kind of selfish that they tend to think in Corinthian terms. And so what Paul's doing, even in some way, is lifting their gaze. And you're part of something bigger than just right there. There's a bigger context that you need to look at and a bigger perspective that there's to look at. There's a bigger family. And so when he, he, he talks about these other churches sending greetings, that to mean something to these Corinthians. This isn't just other people. These are other churches. This is family. And so when your family sends you greetings, it ought to mean something to you. Aquila and Priscilla specifically came out of Corinth. These are brothers and sisters that they would have known personally that were part of the work in Corinth. Former Corinthians, former friends that have gone somewhere else to support the work of ministry. To, to support it in financial ways. But also even maybe even had a church in their house so that the, the gospel could be shared. These are the people that they're sending greetings and, and they ought to value that. There ought to be something to that. This means something because this is the this is the family. Now when I get emails in my inbox, there are a couple different things you can do. You can look at them and delete them right away, or you can actually look at them and care about them. So there's lots of junk mail that comes. Gone. delete, right? You you react differently and respond differently to junk mail versus something that is sent to your inbox that now Google can do this all at all once. It can mark it as important it marks it as important based on lots of different things. But but I respond differently and even read differently based on junk mail and important mail. I do different things because of the value of those things that are coming in. And and this is greetings that are coming from other churches. It, it, It ought to matter. There are certain emails that I've kept for a long time, and I can tell you that none of them are ads. Not that important to me. But some people, some saints, some family have sent me emails that I will never get rid of because it means something. Their greetings, even their normal emails might mean something to me, enough to make me keep it in my inbox. And when God, when He saves us, He welcomes us into a family. And that ought to include a local body. You need to be plugged into a local body where you can be family, have that depth of relationship. But you also have to know that if you've been saved and you've been welcomed into this family, that this is a small family that is part of a much, much larger family that is global and spans throughout time. You're joining saints of old and saints yet to come. You're joining people in this nation and nations all around the globe. This is all part of our family. And I say that intentionally because Jesus said that. That my brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. That we really are family. There's ties here. So when God welcomes us into His family, we're, we're part of God's as at large. But you might be thinking to yourself, like, why would I need another family? Families are dysfunctional. So maybe we have a local family, but I'm not so high on doing another family because families are crazy. And you'd be right. They are dysfunctional. And they always say the more you shake the tree, you're kind of more scared about what's going to fall out. And that's probably true for every single one of us. They're dysfunctional and they're crazy. And that is true. But this is a different kind of family. This is a crazy family, but a radically redefined family. This is a dysfunctional family, but I redeemed family. And that means something to the saints. Now all of a sudden in this family, we're not completely dysfunctional because we have a perfect father. Who never messes up and always sets the right tone for the family. Who always leads in the right way and always gives the right amount of wisdom. Who always handles things with justice and righteousness and holiness. Who is perfectly worthy of all of our adoration forevermore. We have this brother in chief. Jesus Christ, who welcomes us in as a co-inheritor, who gives us all the inheritance that he has earned in the family, who welcomes us in as friends. And so these bonds that we now have in this family are permanent bonds. They can't be broken. No divorce is ever going to happen within this family. No running away. And escaping all family life is ever going to happen anymore. There's complete assurance. There's complete affirmation. There's full acceptance. You have a role. You have an inheritance. You have an identity. You have mutual love. And that will never end. This is the family that we're talking about. We're talking about being part of the family of God. And it exists in a local place, but it also exists worldwide. One pastor says that God gathers sinners from their disparate lives and backgrounds, and unites them with a family bond that can never be broken. And the life they share then glorifies the God and gospel that saved them. God makes us a family, and our family is all about the gospel. God makes us a family. And we are about the gospel. And where other people who are sending us greetings are about the gospel, that is family too. And Paul, when he says that there's greetings coming from this church, is that ought to mean something? We're family. That will make a heart leap. Like we've gotten a letter from our long lost relative on the battlefield. We hear from I'm alive. Greetings. That ought to make some difference to us. Getting a phone call from a child who's been gone for a long time on the front line. That ought to mean something to us. Because it's family. There's a unique bond. A unique closeness. A mutual love. Which leads us to think about how we should greet that family. In verse 20 he talks about that. He says, greet one another. With a holy kiss. It's not my family custom. I come from a family that, it, you know, physical contact is its up in the air. And you might touch, but you might not the whole time. That's just part of being part of that family. But this was a social custom of the time. And it was a common form of greeting. Not just for the church, but for for that time, that culture. And it had deep, also, had deep Jewish roots. And so it was like, the Corinthian culture, they supported this Greeting each other with a kiss. Jewish culture had deep roots in the Jewish culture as well. You greeted a close relation with these kind of kisses. And so it has some roots, as Paul is talking about. It has some cultural uh, momentum behind it when he says this. But Paul doesn't just say, greet one another with a kiss. And I think this is key to what we're talking about. The Corinthians at large in that city could have said, greet one another with a kiss. and That would have been normal. But he says this, greet one another with a holy Kiss. That, that is to say that Paul is saying, just give one another the customary greeting that you would give anybody else within your culture, anybody else within your time, and anybody else within your city. There's something different about this, there's something special about this. So I will hug and kiss my wife, and I won't hug and kiss your wife. Why? Because we're, we're family. That's different. That's good news, right? I should hear a lot of men's from that.
1: When my daughter runs
0: to me, I hug her and I kiss her. I don't do that with all of your daughters. There's a special bond there. There's a uniqueness within this family. They're my family, and so I do that thing, those things with them, whereas I won't do it with everybody at large. And this is a holy kiss. It's not just a kiss. And so for believers, this is a display, an outward display of this special relationship that they have with one another, a holy kiss. It was this outward display of a close-knit family. This relationship was put on display in even how they greet one another. And it's a beautiful picture. This diverse group of people from all sorts of statuses strong, weak, poor, rich, a lot of wisdom, not so much wisdom, nobody's of the earth, somebody's of the earth. They're all coming together and they're joining together as family. And the token of that joy and love and fellowship is, is this holy kiss that they share with one another. And so when Paul is calling them to greet one another with a holy kiss, he's calling on them, even in that myth, even in that sentence. To value one another. To value that relationship that they have with one another. It ought to be a special bond that God creates as He calls us into His family. There's a special bond that ought to be amongst us as a body that doesn't exist outside of that body. I've heard that from many people and it's true of me as well. That there are people here that I'm way closer to than family. Because there's something that we share that's much, much deeper than just a physical family line can share the body and blood of Christ means something. It brings us together and it makes us this close-knit family. Because the gospel, what it does, is it says the sinners who are far off, you can now be reconciled to God. And you're not just reconciled to God. That's good news. But you're also reconciled to a whole bunch of people that you would have been enemies with before. Jew, Gentile, American, Greek. It doesn't matter. We're all coming together as close-knit family, joined together, and even showing them outwardly with our greetings for one another. Now, in our culture, we don't have a greeting that's kind of like a one-to-one relationship with the Holy Kiss. I don't think we can just say, you know what, Paul says to greet one another with the Holy Kiss, that's not our culture, so we have to greet one another with a holy hug. Or, if you're guys, you can do the bro hug if you want, you know? Like the kind of one arm thing, so it's not as, as feminine if you, if you were into that. I don't think that that's exactly what's talking about. I don't think it means like, you need to have a handshake. And that's that's the, that's the status symbol that you need to show. That's, that's the outward display of this this holy kiss. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I don't think we need to stand up here and start discussing, like, let's look at technique here. How, how do we do this hug the right way? Like, or, or what's the what does the secret Christian handshake look like? Or, or is it a kiss? Like do we need it like is it mouth to or, mouth or is it to cheeks? Or how does this all work? What's the technique? I don't think we need to discuss that thing because we should have this close relationship, but it's not necessarily shown in the same way that it was shown in the Corinthian church. Does that make sense? So we don't necessarily say you have to give one another hugs. We just want to know that your outward displays ought to display the inward reality of this close-knit family. So we don't need to talk about all these techniques for different hugs and and kisses. Our outward actions, though, should reflect the closeness of our relationships. So whether we hug or shake or or give a kiss, that's not the point. The point is this closeness of relationship. And at this point, some of you are very, you do not have to kiss one another. You can think it's permissible by Scripture, but it is not necessarily commanded. So I'll let your conscience be the guide there. What ought to be clear, though, is that we value relationships with one another. And that that valuing of one another, that unity that we have, that closeness that we have, it ought to be displayed. And so the question for us as believers is, is do we really value that? Do we really value that, even in a, enough To give one another a huge hug or kiss outwardly and in public if necessary. Because of that closeness and unity that we have with one another. That's what Paul is getting at. That there's this value that you ought to have on one another. And so as Paul closes this letter. He calls the church to value the right kind of people. To value one another. But he has this last word for you. Starting in verse 21 he says this. I'm Paul. Write this reading with my own hand, which was just a, a way of kind of saying this is actually Paul writing. You would probably actually take up the pen. Other parts of the letter you probably just dictate to someone else who would write it down. Here he's actually taking up the pen, signed it in Paul handwriting so that they can know this is Paul's way of avoiding false uh, uh, people writing under his name. He says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So he offers this last warning. You see, you catch that? It's like Paul doesn't just give like happy, warm warnings as he ends this letter. He says in verse twenty-two, "If no one, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And they're, they're thinking, "Yes, this is the hug we're wanting." Paul, like, thank you for greeting us warmly. No, if anyone doesn't know the Lord, let him be cursed. That's very strong language, and Paul does not averse to strong language. He's willing to use strong language when it's necessary. He used that in Galatians, if you remember. He didn't. Just in the letter of Strong. He, he started the letter of Strong language of Galatians. He says, if anyone preaches the gospel, other than the one I preach, if it's me, if it's an angel, whoever it is, let that person be a curse. And Then the same thing here. He, he cares strongly about these things. He doesn't want them to be cut off from God ultimately. But he says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, they need to be cut off from the church. There's a problem here. Because the church is for the people who love God. Paul takes the gospel seriously. He takes the church seriously. And so... Divisions and false teachers he calls those things out. He takes those things seriously. And I think that's what he's getting at here. If anyone has no love for the Lord within your midst, then let that person be cut off. I think Paul wants them to be saved. I don't think he's saying, let them just be done. But I think he understands that the church is for believers. And that unbelievers working in the midst of believers can cause all sorts of problems. We want unbelievers to come. We've talked about that. But are they? are they... Family yet? No, Paul's saying, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be cursed. Our Lord come. He takes these things seriously. But what does he want to leave them with? One of the last couple verses, this kind of a familiar close, and he says that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So after all that he's said, after all the direct conversation that he's had, out of all the topics that he's covered, and all the different problems that he's addressed, Out of all the things that they didn't even think about to bring up that he brings up, after all that, here's what Paul wants them to see. He wants them to read this entire letter, and likely they probably would have read this letter maybe in one one gathering. He wants them in the end to be reminded of his love for them. He wants them to be reminded that all these things that he's spoken to them ought to be read in the light of his love for them as believers. Loved ones are those who will point out when you have food on your face. Or if your zipper's undone. Or if there's something that's just not right that needs to get corrected. Loved ones are the ones that will do that. And they don't do it to say, gotcha, gotcha, you with that stuff on your face. Now you look gone, don't you? That's not why they do it. Why do they do it? Because they love. Because they care. There's something about being in close relationship where that you will point those things out in love, not just to get somebody. And Paul loved these Corinthians enough to rebuke them. Paul loved these Corinthians enough to address their divisions and say, stop it. Paul loved them enough to say, as, as Jay Title one of his servants, quit being a baby. Right? He loved them enough to say those kind of things. He loved them enough to say things like, I watered in Paul's planted, but God gives the growth. So don't worry about us, trust God. He loved them enough to say, you know what, you're saying something about the resurrection that's not true. And if you follow that line out, you're, you're cutting off the legs of our entire faith. <coughs> He loved them enough to say, "You know what? There's some women that are causing problems, in how they're, and how they're practicing their spiritual gifts. Let's address those kind of things. Let's go after those kind of things." He says, "There's some, there's some sexual immorality in your body that shouldn't be named among, among the Gentiles. We're going to talk about that. That shouldn't be happening here. Stop it." Paul loves them enough to rebuke them, say the things he's trying to get them to understand, but he's not trying to nail them. He's not trying to say, "Gotcha, Corinthians." Look at all the, the dumb stuff
1: that you've done. Look at all the problems that you're causing as, as
0: Christians. You're, you're defaming the name of Christ. He's not doing that to say, God. he's doing it because he loves them. He, he cares for them. He, he means it. And even at the end, he wants it to be remembered like, I love you guys. And I want my love to be with you in Christ Jesus. I want you to forget about these things. And isn't that how Jesus ministered? When Jesus didn't come and Say to everyone, give him a good pat on the back, saying, you're doing great. Keep it up. Good job, Pharisees. Another pat on the back. You guys are doing great. You keep it up. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, what he did is he came to he confront the sin. He, he talked about evil as evil. He called it out where it was. But he does it all in love. Jesus didn't stand for wickedness, but he did it because he loves. So as we think back to 1 Corinthians, let's not miss the hard stuff. Let's keep diving into those things and letting the word of God as our mirror show out all of our flaws. But let's not miss the love either. Amen. We want to see the hard stuff. But Paul wants them to see that not only have I called you on your sin, but I've loved you. I've loved you well. And so let's hear these final instructions. Let's value the right things and the right people. But let's not miss love. Let all that we do be done in love. And as he says, let's let the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us. Let's pray again.